0: Well, let me add my own welcome to that of uh, Mike's earlier in the service and uh, encourage you, if you would, to uh, grab hold of the sermon outline uh, that you'll find tucked inside uh, your bundle as you came in. I think you'll find that useful as we begin to uh, continue to look through uh, the Beatitudes one at a time, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, uh, today. And uh, you'll see at the top of the outline, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. We're going to start, though, in Matthew chapter 18. And you might find it useful to turn to page 986, 986 uh, in the Church Bibles, um, as that's where we're going to begin. In this book, uh, uh, Craig Blomberg uh, tells the story of a multi-billionaire in Washington, D.C., who ran afoul of the law for insider trading. And it got worse for him as he saw his entire fortune dwindle to... Uh, uh, dwindled due to investing in junk bonds. Facing bankruptcy and jail, he begged the president of the country uh, for leniency. He'd previously worked for the president, and so he knew him. To his astonishment and to that of the nation, the president announced that he would request a full pardon and set him free. Uh, The billionaire, or maybe I should call him the former billionaire, was overjoyed, hugely relieved, of course, And as he returned home from his meeting with the President, he bumped into an accountant of one of his former companies who'd been caught fiddling the books uh, when he worked for the billionaire. He'd embezzled around $4,000. He was awaiting a court case and he faced a possible short-term imprisonment. And the accountant begged his former CEO to intervene in the pre-plea bargaining process. Coldly, uh, callously and viciously, the former billionaire replied, No, I won't help you. In fact, I'll press for the maximum sentence. Some of the uh, the accountant's colleagues heard what had happened and sent word through a congressional friend to the president who was outraged. He immediately called the former billionaire and said, I was prepared to seek a pardon for you, but I haven't signed the pardon yet, and I certainly won't now. You can face your punishment, which I'm sure will be to spend the rest of your life in jail. It makes your blood boil, doesn't it? That someone who was forgiven so much, who was shown so much mercy by the president, should act in such a way to be so merciless towards someone who'd done so little in comparison. It's not a true story, uh, and neither was Jesus' similar story, his parable in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, but Jesus told the story to get a reaction to make our blood boil towards the man who had been forgiven so much and yet who would not in turn forgive the person who'd done little wrong, relatively little wrong to him. And Jesus' conclusion in that parable comes in Matthew 18, verse 32. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I can't took all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In the parable, the master is God, we are his servants. And the parable tells us that we have been forgiven a debt of almost unimaginable sums. Sums so large, we need to be thinking in terms of figures the size of the sovereign debt that has been run up by countries in the Eurozone. Billions, even trillions of dollars. Our offence against God is incomprehensibly large. Our debt before God is so huge, we could never pay it off. Yet in Christ on the cross, God has shown the most extraordinary mercy toward us. He has wiped out the debt and it cost him. It cost him the death of his son. As we take communion this evening, we should be overjoyed by such love, such mercy. And it should make our blood boil that anyone who's been forgiven so much, anyone who's been shown such extraordinary mercy should be so mean and so merciless towards others. Even others who've cheated them badly because no matter what anyone else has done to us, it cannot be as bad as our offence against God. That's the point of the parable. And, and this is a big and. This parable should make us ashamed if we cannot show mercy towards others when they hurt us. Even if they treat us really badly. Even if their debt against us is substantial, that's the interesting thing in the parable. The the second debt, although small in comparison, was still substantial. Even if we have been seriously mistreated, we should be able to forgive. Because whatever anyone does against us, it cannot be as as significant as our uh, debt against God, which he has mercifully wiped clean. Uh, On Remembrance Sunday, 1987, in Inniskillen, County Fermanagh, Northern Ireland, a bomb exploded at 10.45am without warning. It was planted near the town Cenotaph, where people had gathered to pay their respects to the war dead. 63 people were injured and 11 people killed in that blast. It was a very low point in the already desperate troubles in Northern Ireland at the time. It shocked the nation. But then something happened that amazed and baffled the nation. Do you remember it? Gordon Wilson, the father of one of those murdered at the scene, was seen and heard on national television to forgive those who just murdered his daughter. Now look, whatever you make of the act of forgiveness, Gordon Wilson, a committed Christian, was able to be merciful because he knew that God had shown him unimaginable mercy. And so Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7 Blessed, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown the mercy. Now, this is so countercultural. Mercy is not in rich supply in our world. We live in a blame culture. We demand our rights. We want our pound of flesh. That's how medics I speak to are fearful of litigation. If something goes wrong these days, people are not quick to forgive, but quick to blame, quick to say it's not fair. But look, if we want fair, we're on a very sticky wicket. And so we come to the first point on the handout. Mercy is not fair. It's not about fairness. See, let me ask you, when when you come one day face to face with God, what will you want for yourself? Justice or mercy? Which one? guess it all depends on your track record what you think of yourself me i'll need mercy my track record is appalling i have skeletons in the cupboard that i don't care to tell you about but they are really awful skeletons i need mercy or it's the pits for me literally what about you Well, actually, it's the wrong question. Whatever we think of ourselves, it's God's assessment that really counts. And God's assessment of us all is that we all need his mercy. If we start asking for fair, then God should punish us. Have nothing to do with us. Leave us in jail for eternity. So you see, Christians aren't people who want fair. We rejoice in mercy, in the glorious mercy of our God. And therefore, we must be mercy people. And if we're not, then it calls into question whether we've really understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, or rather, whether the gospel of Jesus Christ has really come into our lives. We may have understood it, but has it impacted us? For those who really know the mercy of God will show mercy to others. That's what Jesus is saying in this Beatitude. We'll look at the cross and say, Lord, You did all that for me. You sent your son to die for me, to take my punishment, to wipe this huge debt clean. You showed mercy to that extent. Christians are people who are so amazed by the cross, so amazed by grace, so amazed by mercy that we have to be mercy people when we think about it. That's the point of the beatitude we're looking at today. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Uh, Come with me if you haven't yet turned to Matthew chapter 5, uh, page 968. And you'll see the the beatitude we're looking at in verse 7, although I've printed it on the handout as well. And, And the reason I want you to come to Matthew chapter 5 is really to come to Matthew chapter 4. As we've seen every week, we've looked at the... Uh, Every week that we've looked at the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, set the scene for Jesus' ministry and indeed the scene for these Beatitudes. Look again at verse 15 that we should be very familiar with now. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now again, I know you've heard this every week, but uh, constant repetition, we'll get it eventually. Matthew there is quoting Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah chapter nine, where... The people of God in Isaiah's day were begging for the Lord to have mercy upon them. Do you remember why? They were facing an invasion from the uh, the northern, uh, from the from the north, the mighty Assyrian army, the great world superpower of the day, were bearing down upon them. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. The Assyrian invasion was the Lord's punishment upon His people, for Israel in Isaiah's day had failed to show mercy. And we saw last time, we're not going to look at it again, but we saw last time, Isaiah chapters 1 to 5, do you remember? The people of God had spurned the Lord and they had shown no compassion to the downtrodden and marginalised in their society. And so the Lord's punishment was coming upon them in the form of the Assyrians. And they were getting what they deserved. If they said it's not fair, he'd have said, no, it is, this is exactly what's happening, it's because it is fair. And yet even though they had been so awful in society and turned their back on the Lord, as they cried out for help to the Lord, he was merciful to them. The Lord just can't help himself. If you, if you cry out to, to ask for his help, he always answers. And here in Isaiah chapter 9, as recorded in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, the Lord shows his mercy promised them a great light to overcome the darkness of death we know that great light was jesus and we see the great mercy of the lord in the cross so you see god's people are always the people who know what it is to be on the receiving end of the lord's astonishing mercy always if you don't know that you're not one of god's people and that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Mercy is not fair. It's the result of the astonishing kindness of our God. And so second on the uh, handout, uh, please uh, understand a crucial point about the nature of mercy. Mercy can't be earned. Now this is really important, because otherwise we miss the point of the the beatitude. You see, we don't obtain mercy because we are merciful. That's not the point of the beatitude. It actually cannot be. It can't be that way around. Otherwise, we'd be earning mercy. But mercy can't be earned, you see. The only basis on which you can receive mercy is need, not merit. If you earned it, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be yours by right. God would have to give it to you. So I don't go around being merciful to everyone I meet and look up to heaven and say, God, are you taking note? Uh, That's three more people I've been merciful to today, four more, five more. Now, you've got to show me mercy now because I've been merciful to so many people. That's not the point of the beatitude at all. I can't work up mercy merit with God. Now, the point is this. Those who have been shown mercy, those who know they are going to receive mercy from God, are those who go on to live merciful lives. Being merciful is the consequence of being shown mercy. So the person who doesn't show mercy to others doesn't understand mercy themselves. Or to put it more positively, the person who knows the mercy of God will show it to others. Now, you'll struggle to find a better example of that uh, than uh, Corrie ten Boom. In this book, The Hiding Place, she recalls a post-war meeting with a guard from the Ravensbrück concentration camp where her sister had died and she herself had been subjected to horrible indignities. So Corrie ten Temboon, by this stage, had been preaching the Christian gospel uh, in many, many chapels. And she'd just done that when this happened. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who'd stood guard at the shower room door in the processing centre at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers uh, that I'd seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face, Betsy, her sister... He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in to the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again I breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him, give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Knowing the mercy of God means we can show mercy to the most undeserving because we know that we are the most undeserving. Or or as C.S. Lewis wrote uh, on the sheet there, uh, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Mercy is not fair. Secondly, mercy can't be earned. Thirdly, mercy can't be set aside for religion. I don't know, that's the best heading. i worked hard on that heading and it still doesn't sound right. This is the point. There is a great danger for religious people, people like you and me. We may not call ourselves religious, but there's a great problem for people like you and me who know the gospel of Jesus, and it is this. We can think that we can put our acts of mercy or forgiveness on one side because of our religious actions we can just begin to think that we don't have to be forgiving because we're good Christians. That's what Jesus warned the most religious people of his day, the Pharisees, about. See, in Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus showing mercy, the, the mercy of God to people who are way outside the kingdom of God, Have people like tax collectors. Now, you know, tax collectors get a hard time today. We all know that. I'm not, sure, sure, I'm not entirely sure I know why. They're, they are only doing their job. But if you happen to find the tax man difficult today, let me tell you that is nothing compared to how people felt about tax collectors in Jesus' day. They were hated and considered to be religious no-hopers. You see, they were Jews working for the Romans, fleecing their fellow Jews to pay the Romans and to line their own pockets. (coughs) Ordinary people had good reason to despise tax collectors in those days. Tax collectors ruined people's lives preyed on the vulnerable and marginalised in society and made it even harder for them. You had every reason to want tax collectors to be brought to justice and no reason to show them mercy. But that is exactly what Jesus did. He offered them forgiveness. And the Pharisees hated him for it. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9 and see this playing out. Jesus showing forgiveness, showing mercy, but the Pharisees hating him for it. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why did your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? on hearing this Jesus said it's not the healthy you need a doctor but the sick but go and learn what this means I desire mercy not sacrifice I desire mercy not sacrifice you'll see from the footnote it's a quote from the book of Hosea and Jesus wanted the Pharisees to understand what it meant so much so that three chapters later when the Pharisees again challenged Jesus he quoted the same verse just look on with me to chapter 12 and verse 7 just over one page i think in the bible chapter 12 and verse 7 where the pharisees where jesus says to the pharisees verse 7 if you had known what these words mean i desire mercy not sacrifice you would not have condemned the innocent he says the same thing twice the pharisees were not merciful at all the pharisees felt they could ignore god's call on them to be merciful because of their religious actions their sacrifices But God desires mercy, not sacrifice. The Pharisees were fastidious when it came to the details of the law, but they missed the really big point of the law, being forgiving and merciful. And that becomes abundantly clear when you turn to Matthew chapter 23. So just uh, flip on again. It's about the last reference in this little section. But it's worth seeing. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23, page 992. remember what we're trying to do here in looking at this verse is we're seeing how the Pharisees were not showing mercy, but they were getting all bogged down in sacrifice, in religion. Matthew 23, verse 23. Whoa, look what Jesus says to them. Woe to you, chiefs of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, notice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You see, the Pharisees conveniently forgot about the big things of God's law justice, mercy, faithfulness. They forgot about those things, but they were pernickety about the smallest detail of the law. We'd say today they miss the wood for the trees. Jesus uses much stronger language. Verse 24 You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. The Pharisees took tithing to the extreme. They gave 10% of everything, including the herbs in their garden. You can see them, can't you, in verse 23, going to their window box and inspecting the parsley, counting out the leaves, and every tenth sprig of parsley, they pick it off and say, that one's for God, I'll take that to the temple. And when they got to the temple with their few parsley leaves, they think they, they paid their dues to God. They're very proud of themselves. I've given God what I need to give. Never mind that on the way to the temple, they ignored tax collectors and sinners and harbored bitterness in their hearts towards them. They kept the little details of the law, but missed the whole point of what the law was about. Justice, mercy, forgiveness, faithfulness. That is so easy for religious people to do. Oh, for us, it won't be digging around in our herb garden. We might not even know the the tithing laws in the Old Testament, but... For us, it's going to be hiding behind our church attendance, our our being part of a Bible study group, our our saying our prayers every day, all important things to do. But we can easily hide behind those things, persuading ourselves we're good Christian people while we refuse to forgive those who hurt us and harbour bitterness and a growing resentment towards someone because they, they did something years ago. I meet Christians who had things done to them years ago. They won't forgive. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Don't hide behind your religious actions as you excuse yourself not to forgive those who've hurt you. What's that about, being a Pharisee? And don't hide behind a clever interpretation of the Bible to excuse your reluctance to forgive others either. Again, that's what the Pharisees did. You see, the Pharisees are so like us because they were great Bible readers. We pride ourselves on knowing the Bible. Oh, they knew the Bible, but they interpreted it in a way that meant they didn't have to forgive certain people. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5. I think this might be the last uh, cross-reference. You see, they're all in Matthew so that we get at a grip of what this phrase mercy really means, what this is really all about. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, page 970. Here again, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. That's the bigger context of Matthew 5. Well, speaking to his disciples, really, but with the Pharisees in mind. Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what the Pharisees were teaching. That was their interpretation of the law. See, the law does say, love your neighbor. And they were saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You see, being sticklers for every detail of the law, the Pharisees had to define who their neighbour was. After all, it's vital that you know who your neighbour is if you're going to love your neighbour. I don't know who they are if you're going to love them. So the Pharisees came to the conclusion that their neighbour was their fellow Jew. Now, once you've reached that point in your thinking, it's very easy to take the next step. I'm to love my neighbour. My neighbour is my fellow Jew. Therefore, I'm not obliged to love anyone who isn't a Jew. And once you've established that, it's a short step to verse 3. Love your neighbour, hate your enemy. See how they get there? Not only a couple of steps. It's obviously wrong, but let's not be so self-righteous and so self-deceiving that we pretend we don't go down the same route. We just use different phrases like charity begins at home. Let's be honest, when we trot out charity begins at home, we usually mean charity ends at home, don't we? It's an excuse not to have to give to others, not to have to love others. No, charity begins at home, so I'm not going to show you charity. We can so easily tuck up t- the teacher of the law and the Pharisees, but we can be just as much like the Pharisees. We can be just as reluctant to love those we don't like. But look what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See the point? God loves his enemies. He's kind to those who ignore him. He's kind to those who've ignored him all their lives. Those who hurt him, those who shun him, those who want nothing to do with him. He's kind to them every day because he gives the heat of the sunshine to them and the refreshing and life-giving rain. He gives it to those who are massively indebted to him. So we too should love our enemies. To demonstrate that we are children of our heavenly father. To show that we are in his family. Show the family likeness. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. Mercy if we cannot show mercy to others, if we refuse to forgive others, if we're people who want our rights and are always saying it's not fair, if we are not merciful, we will not be shown mercy. Because to have that mean spirit demonstrates that we have not been touched by God's mercy in our own lives. You cannot look at the cross of the Lord Jesus really seriously And harbour a bitterness in your heart that refuses to forgive someone. But if that is our attitude, we will hear the terrifying words of the master in the parable, which is on the handout. Do you see it there? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And then we'll hear the frightening words of Jesus that come next in the parable. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Please don't misunderstand it. It isn't if you show mercy, God will show you mercy. It's the other way round. When God has shown you mercy, as he has in Christ, if you really have grasped that, if you really are on the receiving end of it, you will show mercy. And so as we consider the cross of Christ this evening, in taking communion, let's pray that God's mercy in Christ would so grab our hearts, so overwhelm us, so thrill us, that we would long to be merciful to those around us, forgiving them no matter what they've done to us. And in living that way, we'll demonstrate that we are people who know the mercy of God and we'll know that we're going to receive his mercy on that final day. Because blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. well in a moment we'll turn to prayer uh, let me as ever remind you that uh, just on the bottom of the handout there there are ways you can follow this up so every day a little bible passage to read and a way to respond uh, just so that we don't lose it and uh, just move on to something else but now it will be good just to have a moment of silence I wouldn't be at all surprised. In fact, I'm pretty sure I know there are some people in this congregation who are refusing to forgive someone else in the congregation. And I think it would be good right now, particularly before we take bread and wine, to just think on that and to be determined to put it right. It might mean we have a lot of conversations to have this week so let's spend some time in silence thinking that through and let's be sure that we don't hide behind religion when it comes to taking communion thinking we can take it and not forgive others a moment of silence and then after a little while mike will lead us in our prayers